Hey, it's Larry. Uh, Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Real quick, before we get into this episode, I had such an amazing, eye-opening, life-changing experience at the World Parkinson Congress in Kyoto that I want others to have that opportunity, too. So Becca Miller and I and 24 of our PD community friends have launched a year-long WPC Travel Grant Fundraiser. We're each doing a two-week Facebook fundraiser. Mine's underway right now because my birthday's January 9th. All the money raised will be used to help offset travel costs so more people with young-onset Parkinson's can attend the next WPC in Barcelona in 2022. You can search out details on the When Life Gives You Parkinson's Facebook page or donate directly to the WPC website. Go to wpc2022.org slash yopdfund. If you or your business would like to supply matching funds... Hey, good on you. Email me at parkinsonspot at curiouscast.ca. And now, on with the show. Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease, but I'm kind of excited because I'm going to the World Parkinson Congress. This is WPC 2019, the official podcast for the 5th World Parkinson Congress. The event is being held June 4th through 7th, 2019 in Kyoto, Japan. This podcast is created in collaboration with World Parkinson Coalition and my other podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's. First off, it's April, so happy Parkinson's Awareness Month. Sharing stories, whether it's me sharing my story or you sharing yours or anybody sharing their Parkinson's story, is extremely important as we go about making new treatments and the search for cures a priority. Without people with Parkinson's being willing to share their experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, We'll never reach enough people to raise enough money to do enough research to end this disease. So, a heartfelt thank you to you and everyone who is sharing their stories this month and and around the calendar year, whether it's sharing with family and friends, whether it's a small Facebook community, or if you're speaking at an event with 500 or 1,000 people. It's all really, really important. Each episode on WPC 2019, we will explore some of the topics that will be addressed and chat with some of the speakers that are lined up for this year's WPC. Today, we start with David Sangster. David is an ambassador to WPC 2019 in Kyoto. He's from the UK. He was diagnosed eight years ago. As this podcast is released on April 3rd, David is in surgery. He's having DBS, deep brain stimulation. Electrodes are being implanted in certain areas of his brain. These electrodes will produce electrical impulses that regulate abnormal impulses and can also affect certain cells and chemicals within his brain. I was fortunate to catch up with David on Skype just a few weeks ago. He was in a busy cafe in London having hot cocoa. He tells me he had just slipped off the street to take some more meds and was dyskinetic, which caused him to speak at a very rapid pace. Are you are you nervous? No. What are you feeling? No, I'm not. I'm, not, I'm just feeling ready for it, I think. Okay. No, wait, wait for now. I just feel ready for it. I know there's, I know the risks. When I first researched it, it was, you know, it was quite a scary thought. But um, when I look at my children, and think about the surgery, it you know, upsets me now. But if I think about the benefits they'll get, you know, anyway, it's worth it because you know I could have a, another. I could be unlucky enough to have another condition and be having to have forced to have the treatment. Where this is a choice, but lots of a choice after eight years. I'll assure you. But but anybody listening out to this podcast, I shouldn't worry now too much about eight years. I'm going to feel a lot of David Sanks because you, you probably won't. But um, everything's different, you know. You get so sort of mixed, don't they? So, um, hey, you know, people can see what you look like on YouTube because you've done this series of video journals. What prompted yeah. you to do those? Originally, the, back in the well, when I first got diagnosed, before before I got diagnosed, you know, like. 
how did you look into the disease though? Did you YouTube it? Did you Google it? When you first oh, started yeah, symptoms, sure. what did you do? Yeah. Well, that was me, so I started Googling it and researching it. I thought, well, as soon as I died, you know, I, was, I just kind of went in my shell and I just looked at videos of Michael J. Fox quite a lot and kind of tried to track his symptoms almost, because I think you do a lot of compare and comparison, don't you? And, mm-hmm. They tell you not to. Not really, you have to. It's not the way to go, is it? Because I think you realise it's um, inevitably different, aren't they? So, but you don't realise that at the time. You don't. You don't have much experience with Parkinson's. You just think it's just Parkinson's, don't you? Like same, fit, same size fits all, but it's really not like that at all, is it? So, do you? Do you have you had good feedback from the videos? We have. A, we have had some nice feedback, and then it just started off as an, an exercise in just kind of like logging it, and you know, kind of like documenting it for myself, and then. I realised it helped other people and there was some really good feedback. It if it wasn't for the feedback of the community, I wouldn't carry on doing it, I think, because um, I think I've I think I've covered everything now. But um I'm just on I'm just on the last of my um my three videos for the DBS. I have deliberately kept the last one back until now, so I'm just just actually busy editing it. At the minute it's gonna be like a quite a long one. Just trying to show the the full process and hopefully there'll be a part four when I show the, the after effects because um, I think it's important to you know to become I've advocated the, the, the you know the benefits of the community and the engagement and being part of something bigger that which is like meet people like you. And I think without reaching out you don't I think if I'd not reached out and got you know developed a voice for the, the condition I think I would be worse off than I am now. It's definitely definitely a therapy for free I think talking to people like this. Oh totally yeah I, I feel it I mean because because you build this community around the world and, and you know people are thinking about you and they reach out and they say hey how That's you fantastic, doing? Yeah. It's it's amazing. But it's good to see people like you coming through as well. They were like really good at the um, really good at the tech and the speech as well. And, Hope that lasts a long time. Because yeah, me too. You're doing, really, you're doing a really good job, Larry. Well, thank Great. you. You know, I I, I feel like I should do it now while I can because you just never know. No, that positive thoughts making my toes tingle. So let's keep talking. Meds are kicking in. So. Um, a question for you. I mean, yeah, yeah. One of the things that's going to happen here in a couple of months is kind of a big coming out party for you. After your DBS, you'll be at the World Parkinson Congress. Are, yeah, just about. It's just about. Hopefully. Yeah. So, so what are you looking forward to in Kyoto? It's just the coming together of all the people with Parkinson's and scientists and researchers and all those different people involved in the charities. Just a bit coming together. But say what the best thing about it is when you when you're there, it's like everybody's everybody's, everybody's in the same boat, symptomatic wise. So you can all just shake away. You know, it's, that's the best bit about it. It's, it's, it's so such so such a um, such a you know such a relief to see everybody walking the streets with symptoms. You know, even though they don't want to feel like that, but. Not feeling like there's any stigma or like any embarrassment or. Hey, David, thanks so much for giving me a shout. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in Kyoto and I wish you all yeah. the best of uh, success with this surgery. I, I'll, I'll be thinking of you and sending you good, good vibes. Take care, friend. I'll see you in, in Kyoto. All right, take care. Dr. Simon Stott is Deputy Director of Research at the Cure Parkinson's Trust. His website, scienceofparkinsons.com, is awesome. It's plain English information about the research conducted on Parkinson's. Simon, how, how did you first get involved with Parkinson's research? Um, so I'm originally from New Zealand, and there was a small biotech company in New Zealand called Neurons. Um, they, they thought they were very cute because they had NZ on the end of the name. The folks across the road at uh, Auckland Medical School affectionately called us Morons with NZ on the end. But um, it was while I was working at Morons that um, uh, the company was trying to take a small molecule through the um, FDA clinical trial process for um, Parkinson's and other neurodegenerative conditions. And to my mind, um, Parkinson's was the easiest problem to solve. So what year was that? My goodness, this is it's, uh, 15 years ago now. So what would you say was the state of research as it relates to Parkinson's back then? <laughs> That's a fascinating question. 
when you look at the history of Parkinson's, the last 200 years, it's only in the last 20 years um, that 80% of the research has actually been done. And it really stems from um, the genetics, the, the explosion in genetics. Um, in 1998, we had our first, uh, 1997, excuse me, we had the first genetic risk factor associated with Parkinson's. 1998, we had the second. And it's these risk factors that have told us a bit about the biology of Parkinson's and models and theories have built up around these biological pathways. It's, it's been an amazing period of time for um, Parkinson's research the last 20 years. Do you feel that that's continuing today into 2019? Hugely. Yeah, absolutely. When you look back when, when, it, when you look back when I first got into Parkinson's research, there was one or two clinical trials that were um, looking at disease modification for Parkinson's, that is trying to slow, stop, or reverse the condition. And now there's just dozens and dozens of clinical trials taking all sorts of approaches. Um, I'm always very weary of getting too excited. I get very excited about the research, and I'm always very weary about expressing that too much because I don't want to raise people's expectations. Uh, and there's never a good time to have Parkinson's, but now is the most dynamic time for Parkinson's research. So it's, it's hugely exciting for um, people in the research field. Yeah, on the website, I've noticed you tend to warn people against the dangers of high expectations. Why is that? Um, two reasons. Number one, people going into clinical trials, you don't want them to be um, having high expectations because that potentially brings on what's called the placebo effect. If they're in, on the uh, if they're on the control group, that is the group that's not getting the treatment, um, and they're blind to that, they can easily start to think that they're having beneficial effects. Um, so you don't want people to be going into a clinical trial with high expectations. And um, also, um, the terrible truth of the matter is about 95% of everything that's gone into clinical trials thus far has failed. So we, the, the best and the most prudent approach to any sort of clinical trial process is to simply go into it thinking that whatever you're testing is going to fail. I myself have basically developed a cup is completely empty kind of mentality to it. <laughs> so um, that way I don't expect any, I don't expect anything to happen. Um, but if anything does happen, it's just magic. It's spectacular. So putting all of our expectations aside, are we closer to a cure today than we were 15 years ago? Oh, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a question I hate to get. People are always asking um, folks in the research community, how much, how much, how much more time, how much more time? And uh, the answer is usually five more years. <laughs> um, Always five years away. Yeah. There's a couple of clinical trials that are kicking off very shortly. Um, these are phase three trials. So they are sort of the, the final step, the final hurdle for a, a treatment. And um, if, if those are successful, and it's a big if, um, then in potentially in three or four years, we get the results and that becomes clinically available. Um, yeah, I'm always very reluctant to answer this question. <laughs> well, and on, on, the, on the website, I, I read that for any cure for Parkinson's, there's going to be, require three core components. Yes. C can you list those for us? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the first component is simply something, a disease-halting mechanism, something that's going to slow or stop the condition in its tracks. It's a Parkinson's is a progressive condition, and um, what we need to do firstly is just to stop it from progressing. The second component 
is some sort of neuroprotective treatment, something that is going to um, nurture and rejuvenate um, the remaining cells and protect them and um, also provide a nurturing environment for um, the third component, which is some form of cell replacement therapy. And it, uh, this, uh, this, this, this equation is going to differ from person to person because if you've just been diagnosed with Parkinson's, your curative therapy could potentially just be a disease-halting mechanism and a bit of neuroprotective treatment. You not, may not necessarily need the cell replacement therapy, but if you've had the condition for 10 or 15 years, then you're probably going to need some of those cells replaced. Yeah. Parkinson's, you lose, um, is a neurodegenerative condition, and that means that you're losing cells in the brain, but it's specific populations of cells. And the one we classically refer to are the dopamine-producing cells, dopamine being this chemical that the brain produces. And by the time you're diagnosed with um, Parkinson's, you've lost about 50% of those dopamine neurons. And so um, the longer you have the condition, the more the necessity to actually replace some of those dopamine neurons to take up that lost function. Yeah, that's why I keep getting increases in my levodopa. Yes, exactly. Levodopa, um, levodopa is a um, precursor or a, um, an ingredient in the production of dopamine. And um, as we lose the dopamine neurons, we increase the amount of dopamine so, um, to, to help the brain produce more dopamine. So 15 years ago, you got into Parkinson's because you thought it was going to be an easier problem to solve. You still feeling that way? <laughs> Um, I think we're closer to an answer now than we than we were before. Good, but I think I was naive um, in uh, in the initial approach, in that I was thinking of Parkinson's as a singular condition, and now it's very evident evident that um, it's basically a combination of different conditions, but they all have the same appearance. Oh. And you can see this you can see this when you go along to your local support group. Uh, just the variability between individuals um, with the condition. Some are very tremor dominant. Some have got uh, more rigidity issues. And then um, in the non-motor function issues, some have sleep disturbance. Some have gastrointestinal problems. Um, some have loss of smell. It, it varies so widely. It's crazy. It's, there's, um, like four, I, there's like 40-some symptoms you could have. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really in the school now of we're not dealing with just, just one specific condition, but maybe a host of uh, conditions, but they all sort of have this same basic appearance. Well, World Parkinson Congress coming up in June in Kyoto. You're going to be there. Uh, yes, I, very I, excited. I look forward to seeing you there. Uh, your roundtable is called Planet Patient versus Planet Researcher. What should people expect yes. if they sit down with you? Um, Bloodsport. <laughs> <laughs> No, we um, this 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 roundtable basically stemmed from a series of posts that were on the internet, um, where um, a member of the community reached, wrote a letter to Planet Researcher to tell them about um, life on on Planet Parkinson's, and um, I read this. It's a it's a fantastic post, and um, I just decided to write a response. Because I think um, a lot of people in the Parkinson's research community have never actually met someone with Parkinson's. They're doing all this research on this condition. So it's, it's interesting for them to read the, um, a post like that and get the perspective of somebody living with the condition. But um, I also suspect a lot of people living with the condition have never actually met a Parkinson's researcher. 
So um, I, I wrote this post as a response, and um, someone somewhere obviously liked it. And so um, other people have added to this conversation as well, I should add. Um, and it's given rise to this idea of having this roundtable. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious to see. Well, it's really um, a, a microcosm of what the conference is all about. It's bringing those two sides together so we can help each exactly. other. Exactly. It's a beautiful idea. So you talk about uh, wanting to find where patients and researchers uh, can align instead of collide. Where are we colliding today? Uh, I think I think at the moment there's um, it's more a case of where are we aligning um, oh, okay. that I can think of examples. And there's a lot of positive um, vibes out there, and um, so much of the um, energy on the research side, and so many of the ideas now as well are coming from the actual Parkinson's community. There's a lady up in Scotland, for example, Joy Milne, and she was brave enough to stand up at a um, local support group and say, I can smell Parkinson's. And the researcher, um, Tila Kunath, who was um, presenting to the group at that, on that day, um, he must have thought he was dealing with a bit of a crazy individual. But um, to his credit, he went away and um, asked some of his colleagues about um, this idea of maybe smelling Parkinson's. And it's now given rise to this um, – to a whole new field of research that could um, provide us with biomarkers for early detection of Parkinson's. Um, I know that there are dogs being trained to, to smell it. We also have groups of in the Parkinson's community who are organizing conferences that they think are um, on very important topics for folks in the um, Parkinson's community. For example, there's the Parkinson's Eve um, conference coming up very shortly on the 10th of April, which is a um, conference by women with Parkinson's for women with Parkinson's. And women with um, only make up about 40% of the population with Parkinson's. They're, they have different needs and different issues to uh, men. And there is a bit of a disparity in the research being conducted. I'm struggling to think of uh, where the community is clashing. Um, one possibility is um, with regards to clinical trials researchers have to be very careful in the running and the organization of a clinical trial. And I think the, um, the community keen for, for that clinical trial to be processed, to be sped up. It's a very slow process. Well, yeah. I mean, you look at GDNF and finishing the phase two and everybody's eager to get to phase three, right? Yep. And um, the, there are discussions going on in the background here with regards to the possibility of running a, a phase three trial. But at the same time, we have other clinical trials going on for GDNF. There's a gene therapy clinical trial in uh, California at the moment for GDNF. And um, we should know the results of that um, before the end of the year. While we're talking about it, is there a really quick way you can explain what GDNF is for people who aren't aware? GDNF is a protein that the brain makes. Its, um, its full name is glial cell line derived neurotrophic factor. And a neurotrophic factor is a, um, pro a just a protein, a chemical that the um, brain makes to support um, cells in the brain. When they first discovered it, um, they found that it was very, very, very protective of um, dopamine neurons, these cells that are affected in Parkinson's. Everybody got very excited. They started a clinical trial. The first clinical trial was a bit of a disaster, but the second clinical trial gave remarkable results. And um, since then, it's been a bit of a roller coaster of um, clinical trial um, results. And this just recently, we've had a clinical, a phase two clinical trial in Bristol, with um, which was set up with the, the goal of being a, the definitive test for uh, for 
GDNF. The results um, suggest that the trial has um, not reached its primary endpoint. It wasn't a total success. No, it did not. It did not GDNF did not show any major difference compared to a placebo control treatment. But that's pure, only on the um, clinical side. On the um, imaging, brain imaging side, um, the folks who received the GDNF um, did have interesting results. And so now the question is whether um, those interesting results justify continuing um, with uh, the clinical trials program for GDNF. Well, and i got to say, on the science of Parkinson's.com website, you go into this in depth if, if people are interested in learning more about uh, GDNF. I mean, you've, you have it all laid out from the history, from the, from the birth of it to, to now, and it's, it's really insightful. So thanks for all the work you did uh, putting that together. That couldn't have been easy. Oh, you're welcome. Very welcome. What are you looking forward to most at WPC 2019 in Kyoto? So number one, it's being held in Kyoto, and Kyoto is just a beautiful city. It's a really, really spectacular Japanese city. Uh, if you've never been to Japan, Kyoto is definitely one of the cities to see, and the folks in Kyoto are wonderful. They're fantastic people. Number two, I just love the idea of the two communities coming together, the research community and the um, affected community, the Parkinson's community. I'm really excited by that idea, um, the discussions that are going to be had the ideas that will come from those discussions. It's the anecdotal stuff. I think at the moment we've, we have a very good idea on, on the research side about the natural history of um, Parkinson's, but um, it's the anecdotal stuff. That it's that I can smell Parkinson's kind of comment that's going to stimulate um, future research. That really excites me. That's cool. It is. WPC is one of these situations where you can have the best researcher in the world sitting with somebody's um, mother or um, uncle, chit-chatting about the, um, these anecdotal situations and just the possibility that that will stimulate an inkling of the underlying biology of the condition. That just really, I find that very, very exciting. It's like a Petri dish of opportunity. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, aside from clothes and the normal stuff you pack, is there any must-have items that you're going to slip into your suitcase for Kyoto? <laughs> I think a healthy uh, appetite. The food is sensational in um, Kyoto. One of my worries is, is that um, Japan can be very hot and humid um, in the summertime. So um, I'll be packing light. Uh, before going to Japan, though, I'll be flying down to New Zealand to um, see my family and um, friends. Um, my mother told me that Japan is halfway to New Zealand, so I don't really have a choice. I have to fly home. Um, Turkey was halfway to New Zealand as far as my mother's <laughs> concerned. So any, anywhere outside of England would be halfway home, so I'd have to make the trip. But um, it's an opportunity to um, get over the jet lag um, before venture, venturing on to Kyoto. And I'm looking forward to it. I'll be giving a presentation at the um, Parkinson's New Zealand organization. Simon, that's great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Each episode of WPC 2019, I'm going to provide a Kyoto life hack, a tip, a cultural insight, etiquette advice, language lessons. It's an extra dosage travel guide to get us all better prepared for our trek in June. None of us want to offend anyone or be embarrassed. So James Heron, the executive director of the Japanese Canadian Cultural Center, has agreed to join us each episode. He's going to teach us a word or a phrase and provide some insight into the culture that we can expect. James, I like to eat, and Simon just told us to bring an appetite. My first question is, do I, do I take my shoes off when I go to the restaurants? 
uh, it very much depends on the restaurant. More traditional places, you will. Um, less traditional places for uh, Western restaurants or a, a lot of different types of pubs, you don't have to. But um, it'll be very clear what you need to do uh, when you enter the restaurant. When you do take your shoes off, uh, you know, you... Um, there's usually a, a, a set of slippers that they'll give you, which will get you from there, uh, from the entrance to the tatami mats uh, in a traditional restaurant where you would just sit in your sock feet. Also, most uh, traditional restaurants will have a separate set of slippers for the washrooms. So one of the um, one of the classic uh, blunders that we as foreigners make often is to uh, to put those. Uh, toilet slippers on and to wear them back into the restaurant. So Ooh. always make sure to, there's a lot of slipper changing in, uh, in a traditional Japanese restaurant, but uh, I think if you watch the people around you, you'll, uh, you'll know what to do. Well, and that may be challenging for some of the folks that are headed to the conference who, who have a hard time, you know, controlling their body and stuff. It, do you have to wear slippers? Uh, you don't. Um, as I said, the, uh, the Japanese are, um, are very courteous and, um, you know, if, if, if people have any sort of disadvantages uh, in, in terms of being able to, to uh, negotiate some spaces, the Japanese will be very forgiving and very supporting and supportive of, um, of, of what people need. So I, um, I wouldn't consider that uh, a concern. Great. Uh, the last thing maybe I'll say with regards to food and, and drink is um, with regards to, to drinking, uh, generally, whether it's beer or sake, uh, you don't pour for yourself. Oh, okay. Uh, people, people will pour for you and you sort of pour for other people. And when people go to pour for you, you sort of just lift your glass a little bit and let them pour. Okay. Which has the disadvantage sometimes you lose a little bit of control in terms of how much you're going to drink. So um, if you if you if you sip your drink to the bottom, you can usually expect it to be refilled. And what if you don't want to refill? If you don't want to refill, um, you know, usually you would just put your hand over the glass and say thank you uh, or no thank you, um, and and just ask for something that's non-alcoholic. And what is the uh, traditional uh, toast or, or phrase that you might say before you take a drink? The traditional toast is kanpai. Kanpai. Kanpai, yeah. And it really that really means uh, dry cup. So bottoms up, I guess. So. <laughs> Great. Thanks, James. We'll be sure to post these words, pronunciations, and cultural insights on the show notes. From Curious Cast and the World Parkinson Coalition, this is WPC 2019. Special thanks to David Sangster and Dr. Simon Stott, who served the Parkinson's community, and James Heron, all of whom joined us today. Visit WPC2019.org to learn about the upcoming Fifth World Parkinson Congress. It's a global Parkinson's event that opens its doors to all members of the Parkinson's community, including those like me with the disease. Follow WPC on Twitter at WorldPDCongress. If you want to help spread the word about the podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free. Search for WPC 2019 and When Life Gives You Parkinson's. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca and WPC2019.org. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up at Parkinson's Pod or email us, ParkinsonsPod at CuriousCast.ca. WPC 2019 is written and produced by me, Larry Gifford. Dila Velazquez is our story producer and sound design by Rob Johnston. I look forward to seeing you in Kyoto. Matashita.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.